Come into the sanctuary and be welcome. No matter where you've been, no matter where you're going, you are welcome here. Regardless of whether you come with joy or heaviness in your heart, you are welcome. Whether you believe in God all of the time or some of the time or none of the time, you are welcome. No matter what body brings you here, no matter who you love, you are welcome here at First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. I'm the Reverend Bob LaValle, and I'm delighted to be joined here today by our music director, Susan Peck, and our worship leader, Raven Reed Starr. And I want to thank Hannah Stevens, aka Fairy Aria, for sharing today's whimsical time for all ages. Our DJ today is Chris Paul, and our tech team is Arnie Golrud, Cy Schuster, Michaela Renz Whitmore, and Jordan Jones. And thank you so much for co-creating worship today. And if you're visiting and you're comfortable with it, you're invited to put your name and location in the chat so that we can greet you. We're so glad that you're here. Whether you've been here once or a thousand times, we're glad that you're here. Raven has an announcement. Good morning. We are excited to remind folks that our senior minister, Reverend Angela Herrera, is returning next Tuesday after four months of sabbatical. Reverend Angela has been disciplined about her time off and has had almost no contact with the church and congregation during her time away. Because of this, everyone is encouraged to give her the time and space to reorient herself upon her return. Reverend Angela will be in the pulpit next Sunday. Let's kindle our chalices. We light this chalice to find inner peace, love for each other, and faith in ourselves. Maybe we may we be welcoming to whomever we meet and kind to all living creatures. Let us gather around this light of hope as we share this time together. Good morning. I'm just going to briefly introduce our guest musicians this morning, the Petroglyph String Quartet is connected to our church through Carl Winkler, who's a member. We've been able to help them out a few times this past year by letting them into the sanctuary to do some recording for some local regional music festivals that were all done by video. They were graciously shared their videos with us. So please enjoy these movements of a Beethoven string quartet from the Petroglyph String Quartet. Thank you.
Hi, I'm Isla Rose. Please join me in the children's affirmation. We are Unitarian Universalists. We are people of faith with open minds, loving hearts, and helping hands. So glad that I could be here. I got so excited when they invited me. Um, yes, this is Fairy Aria. I'm I'm a music fairy. You've probably seen me around, but usually, usually I'm very very tiny, right? Most of the fairies that you see are pretty small. Uh, that's because, well, we like to fly around, and there's a lot of gravity here on Earth. Fairyland is just such a very small place. There's not so much gravity, and it's much easier for everything to fly. <laughs> anyway, um, I thought today I would just sort of say hello, tell you a little bit about myself and my friends. Oh, I have a friend right here. <gasps> now, this is Tessitura. Um, you might remember I was just saying everything's kind of smaller in Fairyland. Um, dragons as well. Now, this dragon, She's hiding because when a dragon comes into your world, it's a little dangerous for a dragon. I mean, just imagine if there were a really huge flying dragon around. Uh, I think the police might be really worried and they might go and arrest him or her. This is a girl. Her name's Tessitura. She loves to fly really, really high. And you might notice she's changed a little bit. She likes to be in disguise, but you can tell if a dragon is real. If you look into her eyes, you can kind of tell sometimes it'll do a special little fiery thing. It's kind of difficult. Can you tell? Not everyone can see it. Some people can, especially if you have any fairy blood in you. That just means if you have a fairy in your family somewhere and sometimes they don't tell. So Tessitura, Yes, she's a dragon. Do you, do you know what dragons like to eat? <laughs> Don't worry, it's nothing scary. I mean, well, it depends on the dragon, really. Tessitura really likes seafood because she likes to fly over the ocean. That's where we used to live in Fairyland. I lived in a tree, in a little oak tree. Well, actually a big oak tree, um, right by the water because I love the ocean and I love, of course, music. There were loads of birds who would come and fly around and you might notice I have painted my face a little. We love doing that when we're fairies. We love to do each other's hair. We love to play with, with paints and things. Although it's much nicer here in your world because I have white face paint. Um, in Fairyland, we don't have white face paint and we can't use berries and things for white. We use bird poo. You don't want to use bird poo here because sometimes birds have diseases, but not in Fairyland, so it's quite good. So, um, yes, I thought maybe I would, uh, oh, I do have a little ukulele here. Let me grab that. Hmm. It looks just like a tiny guitar, right? Hmm. It's pretty much in tune. Hmm. And so, I like playing this because uh, it doesn't matter if you have tiny fingers, you can still play a couple chords. 
Así. It's pretty fun. So I thought maybe, oh, I could sing a little song and you can sing along with me. Hmm. First, I'll sing one that you probably don't know, so you don't have to sing it. My grandmother taught it to me, and I don't think I don't think you'll know it, but I'll teach it to you, and you can learn it. So it goes like this: You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. Uh oh, wait. Are you singing? Some of you are singing. Did my grandmother teach you this song too? <sighs> it sounds like you know it. Hmm. Well, okay, that's great. You can help me along because sometimes I forget the words. Sometimes fairies are very forgetful. So let's see. You are my sunshine, my only sunshine. You make me happy when skies are purple. I think it's purple. Purple's my favorite color. That makes me happy. It's not purple. You make me um, happy when skies are gray. Oh, thank you. Some of you actually had that one right for me. Thank you. You'll never know, dear, how much I love chocolate. Please don't. Oh, did I get it wrong again? Ugh. You'll never know, dear, how much I love kitty cats. Not again. Okay, what's the what's the actual word? I'll let you help me. I you'll never know, dear, how much I love you. Thank you. Please don't take my sunflower away, sunshine away. Oh my goodness, how silly was that? Thank you for letting me get through that. Um, it's actually a really really nice song, isn't it? Hmm. Sometimes I have too many things running around in my mind, and then it gets me confused or puz I'm puzzled, puzzled. Anyway, does that ever happen to you? Where you have too many things to think about, and you want to say too much at the same time, and it's really, really, really difficult? I know exactly how you feel. But I'm a music fairy. I love to sing. I love to dance. Most places, there's only one word for music, and you have to dance and sing at the same time, which is pretty wonderful. She's going to look for the most magical bubble before she catches it. <laughs> Ready? Okay, come on. Catch one of these bubbles, Rosalie. Not that one. Okay. There we go. Oh, you got it! Wait, let's see that. Hold it up so that the people can see it. Okay, you found one. Very nice. Thank you so very much for watching. Bye-bye. Uh, I love that. Let's pause the chat for a few moments as we move into a quieter, more centered, perhaps, time in the service. You know, meditation offers us the opportunity to check in with how we feel. Sometimes our minds are so busy, so noisy, that we don't understand really how we feel about a situation. We might get so wrapped up in intellectually litigating the issues of the day 
that we get distracted from our true selves. And that spirit, let's ground ourselves. Place your feet on the floor if that works for your body. Feel all the places where your body is touching something and supported by something. Let's take a couple of deep breaths together. Inhaling. Exhaling. One more. Inhale. And exhale. Grounded. A little more rooted, a little calmer. In that spirit, let's sit together in sacred silence for two minutes. Each day, we add a page to the story of our lives. At times, those pages tell of joy and gladness, and other times of sorrow and concern. Our stories are woven together when we support each other in moments of joy or sadness, and others support ours, us and ours. These interwoven moments become part of the story of our community here together. Please share your joys and concerns in the chat bar as prompted by the video. If you cannot share in the chat bar today for any reason, we still want to hear from you. Contact us at caring at uuabq.org.
las hojas del viento mi vida ponle una montura al río cabalga y si te da frío te arropas con la piel de las estrellas y almohada la luna llena mi vida y de sueño el amor mío y una amapola me lo digo ayer que te voy a ver que te voy a ver y un arco iris me pintó la piel para amanecer contigo y una amapola In a religious community like ours, our primary task is to journey together, carry and celebrate all the things that make up our lives, the joys and the concerns. So many joys for nature, being able to be outside, joy for hot air balloons, for birthday parties, joy of reading books, reading books across generations. It's just the joy of healing and hikes and companionship. Friendships renewed after a long, long parting. And we carry each other as we have concerns. We lift up Dave, Dave Arismith, 
Elia's father who passed. May light perpetual shine upon him. And we grieve with Ferris Todd's daughter who miscarried. We hold all of those who have health concerns right now, and we especially hold the health of our democracy in this moment, which it, where it seems so in peril. And we mourn with Jairus Carolyn about her daughter. And we hold all these, all these joys and concerns. May we lift them up to the great powers of celebration and healing and renewal that are known by many names. On this Memorial Day weekend, we mourn the loved ones of all those who died as part of their military service. As they make decisions of war and peace, may our leaders honor the idealism of the people who serve. On this 100th anniversary of the Tulsa Race Massacre, we pray for the descendants of those whose lives were lost or uprooted on that day. May there be straight and honest talk about the actions of the white mob and the complicit government on that day. And may justice finally come to the victims and their families. In this time of graduations and transitions, we congratulate the folks moving on to more learning, more responsibility, and we celebrate with their loved ones who journey with them. And no matter what, we give thanks for all the good things in our lives. May our practices of gratitude ground us. And may we all be held in the heart of love. Amen. Blessed be and peace be with you. And also with you. Will you join me in song? This is number 317 from Singing the Living Tradition. The words are in the chat box, and in a moment we will put the sheet music in front of you if your screen is large enough to see it. Please join me in singing this beautiful hymn, We Are Not Our Own. Justice willing and aware 
give to earth and all things living liturgies of care. Let us be a house of welcome, living stone upholding living stone, gladly showing all our Our reading this morning is Sweet Darkness by David White. When your eyes are tired, the world is tired also. When your vision has gone, no part of the world can find you. Time to go into the dark where the night has eyes to recognize its own. There you can be sure you are not beyond love. The dark will be your home tonight. The night will give you a horizon further than you can see. You must learn one thing. The world was not made to be free in. Give up all the other worlds except the one to which you belong. Sometimes it takes darkness and the sweet confinement of your aloneness to learn. Anything or anyone that does not bring you alive is too small for you. Hmm. Good morning again. I'm going to start by asking for a favor. Today I was scheduled to preach on the theme of same storm, different boats. And this topic was chosen by folks who took part in the social justice committee auction. They paid for this sermon. And as most folks know, my father passed last week and I was in Buffalo for his funeral. And I wanna say thank you to all the kind words that folks extended to me. And I, I did feel carried by this congregation this past week and continue to do so. But the fact is folks paid for the sermon topic. And I, all I can say is I just didn't have the time or clarity of mind to write that sermon. So today I'm preaching a sermon that I wrote a couple years ago. I promise that I'll preach on same storm, different boats in the coming months when I have the ability to give this excellent topic all the attention that it deserves. And I appreciate your patience. And thank you in advance for the understanding. Here's the sermon. About 10 years ago, my friend Marta's house in Boston, Massachusetts, burnt down on Christmas Eve. The fire happened at night while she and her mother and teenage daughter were sleeping. Smoke alarms worked, thank heavens, but they barely had time to grab their coats and get everyone outside. And they watched in shock as everything they owned went up in smoke. And I asked Marta what she wished folks understood about her situation after the fire. She talked about how incredibly it can, damaging it can be 
to one's mental health to go through something like that. She talked about how overwhelming it is to deal with insurance companies. It was so hard for her to help her teenage daughter deal with the loss while coping with her own feelings at the same time. Everything was upended. Since then, the holidays are always mixed for her. She has many happy memories and also a lingering trauma. Mostly she thinks about how lucky it was that their whole family got out safely. She's so grateful for that. Above all, she feels more vulnerable now that she's learned how quickly and easily a life can be destabilized. More vulnerable. You know, a disaster is a moment when irresistible destructive forces hit us in ways that can't be controlled. Those forces may have been out there all along, like a storm out in the middle of the ocean, but they only become a disaster when they hammer our vulnerable lives. It's this mismatch between the storm's force and our puny protection that causes the disaster. Fact is, we're always walking around vulnerable. We're always a disaster waiting to happen. One April morning in 1906, a woman named Anne Holshauer was shaken out of bed by an earthquake in San Francisco. Her house was destroyed, so she salvaged what she could and she walked with thousands of other people to Golden State Park, Golden Gate Park. After three days there, she stitched together blankets and rugs and created a tent that housed 22 people including 13 children. Starting with just one pie plate and one tin cup, she began cooking meals for others. Other survivors gave her money and she walked to Oakland to buy cooking utensils. Eventually she served, she was serving hundreds of meals a day. And her friends put up a sign naming the soup kitchen, the Palace Hotel. The actual Palace Hotel in San Francisco had burnt down. She wasn't alone. All over the shattered city, average people set aside the old order of individualism and competition, and to put it simply, took care of each other. On the other hand, the established authorities in San Francisco did not behave so well. Eventually there were over 17,000 soldiers patrolling the city seeing mobs of looters where there were just folks trying to find food to find the, to feed their families. The notorious shoot to kill order was given and as a consequence people acting to help each other were sometimes murdered by the so-called keepers of the peace. The fear of the establishment, establishment was not that people would starve but that the old order would be upended and that people would take their fates into their own hands. That might take back what is rightfully there from the class that, what was rightfully there is from the class that was exploiting them. Remember, 1906 was near the end of what was called the Gilded Age. This was a time where technological advancements caused an economic boom, but that economic boom only served a very small slice of the population. Immigrants were treated horribly, and corruption was so common 
that it was called the Era of Good Stealings. Does that sound familiar? All this and much more is described in a wonderful book by Rebecca Solnit called A Paradise Built in Hell, The Extraordinary Communities That Arise in Disaster. That's a paradise built in hell. And the conventional belief is that in an emergency, regular folks somehow are transformed into irrational, angry mobs. And we've seen the movies and all that trope. In this book, Solnit describes the amazing ways in which the opposite is true. Whether in New York City during 9-11 or in the Halifax, Halifax Nova Scotia explosion of 1917 or the Mexico City earthquake in 1985 or Katrina in New Orleans in 2005, when there was a crisis, people stepped out of their normal social circles to take care for each other, to take care of each other. Emily Klein wrote a book called Shock Doctrine, The Rise of Disaster Capitalism. And the basic thesis of the book is that there is a pattern of corporations taking advantage of a cataclysmic event to seize control of markets. A good example would be the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Following the storm and the flooding, the public schools and hospitals fundamentally ceased to exist. And they were replaced by for-profit entities that extracted money from the community. They are much less accountable. Sometimes an obvious disaster is followed by a quiet one. So for three months at the end of 2017, I spent my days on the phone in the Small Business Administration Disaster Loan Customer Service Center. I was between chaplain gigs, and just so happens that the Disaster Loan Customer Service Center is in Buffalo, New York. And this is where folks who are victims of disaster call in for advice about how to get assistance from the government to rebuild their homes and their businesses. To refresh your memory, it seems so long ago, but 2017 was an awful year for a lot of folks as a result of natural disasters. There was Hurricane Harvey in Texas, Hurricane Irma in Florida, and worst of all, Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico, in the, Puerto Rico and the surrounding islands. Then there were the California wildfires that fall. A dozen people died in those and thousands of homes were destroyed. Uh, I, I had never worked at a call center before and I have to say, they are amazing places. This one was a huge room, 150 cubicles, everybody working in teams, everyone wearing headsets. The thing that's amazing about it, though, is the level of scrutiny. Everything is driven by metrics. Giant signs hang from the ceiling telling everyone how many callers are waiting on hold and how long they've been waiting. When I started at the end of September 2017, on average, people were waiting an hour, waiting an hour before they would even talk to somebody. So in my cubicle, on my phone, there were five main buttons. There was a button for call-in, which put me in the queue to receive calls from the outside. When this button is pushed after I hang up, I have 5050 seconds to type my notes in our shared database before the next call rings on my line, less than a minute. If I need to, I can push the button marked after call, 
which put, puts my phone in pause while I finish updating the database from the last call. But I have to be careful not to push that button too often or I'd hear about it from my supervisor. There's a meeting button, which I pushed when I was in meetings with my team. There's an admitting button, button for when I needed to go talk to my supervisor or get something off the printer or the like. And there's a break button for me time. So during my nine hour workday, and sometimes it was a, long, a lot longer, I get 30 minutes for lunch, two 15 minute breaks. If I went over that 15 minutes, when I got back to my cube, my boss would be waiting for me there. Through these buttons, my boss monitored every second of my day. And every day, my teammates and I got a spreadsheet of our previous day's time spent in each category with our rankings. I was always comfortably in the middle. If I spent too much time in admin or after call, I'd have to go have a conversation with my boss. And the monitoring didn't end, end there. The boss listened in on our calls. He'd even send a text message to my desktop in the middle of a call that would suddenly would pop up and say, hey, tell the caller this or that. It was really unnerving at first. Fundamentally, call centers are about control. The managers are presented with the ability to monitor the behavior of their employees in a way that no other industry can. And what can be measured becomes what is important. And what can't be measured is disregarded, or at least diminished. One thing you can't put a number on is stress. So I was never called into meetings with my boss to talk about my stress level. Now, the hard thing for me from the get-go was the juxtaposition of this sterile the clinical management setting with the heartbreak I was hearing over the phone. People would tell me about the destruction of their business and weep. People would cry into the phone while I could hear a child fussing in their lap. And as I'd listen with my heart breaking, I'd be watching the call timer on the phone, knowing that I'm going over the call center goal of six minutes and 30 seconds per call. Remember when I spoke about moral injury? Those calls were a tiny dose of moral injury. I also learned a bit about how we as a country think about poverty. So after the initial assistance to keep people safe and sanitary during the storm, the federal government has two kinds of recovery assistance. For the very, very poor, and by very poor, I mean elderly or disabled with no prospects of employment, there are outright grants to help rebuild people's homes or get them rehoused. But for everyone else, there's a very low interest loan that, yes, must be paid back. Several times, I had the conversation with folks where I explained how the grants were for the desperately poor and the loans for, for, were, were for folks who had means. And one woman said to me, so I get punished for having my act together while some jackass gets a free handout? I bit my tongue. I nearly bit my tongue off. And this really, this confirmed for me that the real disaster, the real disaster is our economy, how we do a capitalism. The thousands of conversations I had with folks trying to rebuild their lives confirmed for me that the floods and fires and windstorms 
just topple the people who are already teetering. I talked with so many folks who before the disasters had constructed safety webs, safety nets made out of spider webs, who were just barely hanging on from month to month. And as I talk to people in that situation now, right here, I, I know it's an ongoing thing. The system is simply not working. Or rather, the system is working for the top 10% and no one else. People who work full-time should be able to afford housing and should have security in a disaster. I spoke to a man who was living in his car with his kids. That ain't right. So yes, a call center is about control, but disasters remind us that control is an illusion. I don't know this for sure, but I bet that everyone in this sanctuary has at one point or another had the rug pulled out from underneath them or known someone who has had the rug pulled out underneath them or really more to the point, met that irresistible destructive force that hits us in ways that can't be controlled. It's part of living. Perhaps this knowledge of our vulnerability is what drives us to go to such great lengths to create a sense, an illusion of control. Well, we can't prevent disasters from happening, but we can prepare. And it's funny because where I worked, I read all these government disaster preparation pamphlets. They're heavy on advice, like having the right gear ahead of time, which is surely a decent idea. Buy weeks with the food that won't perish, have extra batteries, keep some cash around the house. But they never say a word about looking out for your neighbors or asking for their help. Let's remember what Rebecca Solnit reminded us in her book. In disasters, people mostly respond by being amazing to each other. So our best preparation, our closest thing to being in control, is having good neighbors. And we have good neighbors by being good neighbors. That's a plan ahead thing too. Before we need to ask our neighbor if we can plug our phone chargers into their generator, hopefully we've been a good neighbor to them already in all the large and small ways that being a, a good neighbor means. My friend Marta, remember back whose house burnt down? She saw that after her home burnt down on Christmas Eve, she saw what that being a good neighbor means. Up to then, she'd been a tireless advocate for the Latino community in Boston. When the disaster hit, her community, the community she served, rushed to support her and her family. She didn't know it until the day after the fire, but she'd been preparing for disaster all along. And that begs the question, how are we, each of us, preparing for the disasters that we can't anticipate? What kind of safety nets are we creating when we interact with our neighbors and when we interact with strangers. You know, it's much more than a practical thing too. It's a spiritual posture to affirm our interdependent web of existence and consider the times when we may depend for our lives upon that interdependent web. But more, more importantly, in our day to day, that 
sense of constant renewal of the sense of interdependence is what builds us, grounds us, and carries us through. I'd love to pray that disaster never touches any of us, but I, I think that's the wrong prayer. I pray instead that we live and love with full awareness that disaster is always a possibility. And that instead of making us clutch for greater control, this awareness brings us into greater communion with each other. May it be so. Amen and blessed be. Through the months of March, April, and May, our Change for the Future recipient has been the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico. The ACLU of New Mexico protects and advances justice, liberty, and equity as guaranteed by the constitutions of New Mexico and the United States. It is especially focused on groups that have been historically disenfranchised. You can make an offering online by clicking on the link that we'll put in the chat box. And if you prefer not to give online, you can simply mail a check to the church office and include change for the future on the memo line.
What is generously given is received with gratitude. Thank you on behalf of First Unitarian Church of Albuquerque. Thank you for all the generosities that this congregation lives by. And thank you on behalf of the American Civil Liberties Union of New Mexico, the great organization. We're approaching the end of the service today. I wanna to invite anyone who would like to stay for a chat with our sibling congregants, just stay in the call until the end of the, the credits, and you'll be placed in a breakout room. And I have a invitation uh, for a discussion question. Discussion question, if you wanna carry it on either here or at home, how do you create a safety net with your neighbors? How do you create a safety net with your neighbors? And that's in the chat box as well. Well, let's extinguish our chalices. Let's remember the words of David White. Anyone or anything that does not bring us alive is too small for us. Go in peace, gentle people and practice radical love.